0: You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, Purpose to Promise, we walk through the first 11 chapters of Genesis from God's purpose for His creation to His promise to Abraham. All right, good morning, everybody. We will, uh, we're going to continue, kick the can a little bit further in the, in the book of Genesis. Um, so if you have your Bibles, I hope you do, please turn there with me. Um, again as we continue our journey through Genesis, I want to uh, first give you three things to remember today. Just kind of lay out a game plan for today. I want to kind of give you three things to remember that, that maybe you can jot down in your, especially if you have your journaling, um, uh, a Bible with you, you can jot these things down so you can always go back to them and, and just kind of refresh your brain. And then we'll look at the three days of creation. And then at the end, we're just going to kind of take uh, a couple of things about Christ that we see here in the first three days of Genesis. So that's this kind of the, the, the game plan for today that we will follow. And uh, so let me pray for us, and we will dive in. Father, I thank you for your word. Um, Lord, I thank you um, that we've been able to gather together to sing your word, to hear your word read, and Lord, to hear your word prayed through, Father. Lord, I just ask that you would help us listen well and to help me communicate well, Lord. Father, I pray that you would, um, through your Holy Spirit, work to perfect us. Um, That is the the job of the Spirit as um, he works in us and um, by your word to continue to mold us and shape us into the image of your Son. And Father, I just pray today um, that we will see you for who you are and that will change our hearts. Lord, I pray that you would grant that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so three things to remember. So the two things that, that right off the bat we need to keep in mind are the original audience of Genesis. I want you, to, I want to constantly put this in your mind so that you, you're always framing everything that we're reading in Genesis through this and the purpose for, for them writing it to them because it really helps us to not chase all the rabbits and, and, and fall in, into all the different things and we can kind of keep our eyes on, on Genesis and on God and on Jesus um, through all of this. So... The purpose for which it was written, um, as far as for Israel's concern, was uh, two reasons. Theological and historical. Right? It's to give Israel the theological and historical basis for their existence as God's chosen people. Theological meaning what they should think about when they think about God, right? That's what theology is. It's what your thoughts are about God, Um, which is very important. If you remember where Israel just came from, right, they just came out of Egypt, uh, where they they worshiped so many different gods, right? They had all these different gods, and and we're going to see kind of the the clash of some of those gods and and how this is flushing out a little bit as as we uh, walk through the days um, today. Uh, we will we will see that um, flush out how the different gods um, what they believed about them in Egypt and, and things like that, and and historically, which is God creating His good. Kingdom, Right? So it's a a theological purpose and a historical purpose. In other words, historically, this is the God, the God that, remember, Israel is is wandering or maybe right about to enter the the promised land, and and then he's given them the the Torah, the Genesis, all these things about who this God is that made this promise about the promised land, right? about that I'm going to make you a people and I've got you a promised land. So we, we just need to keep this in, in context as we read it. This is what he's trying to, he's trying to encourage them. He's trying to point back and show them, you can trust this God. You can trust this God that made you this promise because this God is the creator of everything. And I think so many times in our lives, we get so busy and, and so much comes at us and, and, and we're just living our normal everyday life and it comes at us at such a pace that many times we forget I am a child of that God that created everything, right? What a thought. What a thought that should, should make us so much more excited than the fact that we don't have to wear masks today. Stop and think about that. You are a child of the God who created everything. Everything. That's just, that's just incredible. And this is what he's trying to remind Israel. He's trying to remind Israel historically and theologically who this God is, right? Israel, hearing this, would come to the conclusion that God we serve has every right to demand obedience. I mean, after all, that was their problem. That's why they're wandering around the desert, is it not? Because they would not obey what God has told them. So the audience is Israel, the purpose is theological, what they should think about God, historical, about who this God is, and I am making you a kingdom. And remember, what the kingdom is, is God's people in in the land under God's rule, right? God's people, God's land under God's rule. He's making a kingdom, and, and we're working towards that kingdom too. Jesus inaugurated it, and and we're working towards that kingdom too. one, One day, his people will be in his land under his rule. But until then, we're just sojourners and exiles, trying to tell everybody about this God who made this wonderful land. And the third thing I want you to remember is that we must always read with Christ in mind as we read Genesis. See, we can't get so much caught up in what it meant for Israel because Israel didn't have Jesus yet. Right? We do. (laughs) Thank God we do. right? We we need to make sure that we're reading the Bible in light of of Jesus also. We can't leave him out. Right? So many times, any time after Genesis 3, when someone that that is teaching the Word of God, no matter what they call it, I kind of tend to call it the fallen condition focus, they are looking, why is this written? How is this reversing what sin caused? Any Anytime you're from Genesis 3 on, this is what you're looking for in the passage. Um, Brian Chappelle or Chappell, however you want to say his last name, I've heard it said many different ways. Um, he calls it the fallen condition focus. That's that's what I'm usually looking for when I'm looking in a passage. I'm trying to find what is the fallen condition. How has our hearts have been been changed because of sin and how is God writing it or how does God want it to be? Right? Well, we don't have that in chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis. So I wanted to, to put this in your mind to keep in mind that, that all we can do in Genesis 1 and 2 is, is kind of what he was doing for Israel. And that's just showing us this wonderful God that we serve. He is just enlarging our hearts to be so grateful to praise him even more. At who he is and all that he has done. Because obviously sin has not entered into the world yet in Genesis 1 or 2. So therefore there cannot be no fallen condition focus. So all we are doing is in in the next several weeks is we'll be looking at God. It's just... And asking this question, the, the question that, that it seems like that comes up in my mind as is, is I continue, and maybe this is Joe, maybe God will give you a different question to ask as you read this and as we walk through this series, is can I trust this God? This is what I think He's teaching me as I walk through Genesis. Because every time I'm studying and as I'm looking at this and, I, and I'm working through this, what I'm saying, what I'm seeing is, man. Okay, you, you don't trust him with this But look what he did that, That's just what he's Telling me Maybe he's going to show you Something different But I, I hope that you're not here just to, to Learn something, but to hear from someone To hear from the creator Of the universe So let's Keep that in mind as, as we Stroll through this And we'll begin here in Genesis 1 And I, I'm actually going to just pick up in uh, verse 1 and read to verse 5, and we'll look at, at the first day. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. A darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. So we see here on the first day, the sevenfold pattern that occurs in each of the six creation days with slight variations. So there's a pattern. This, this is a pretty remarkable, um, and I'm way out of my zone here when I start talking literature, right? <laughs> this is the, the first two chapters of Genesis is pretty remarkable um, literature as, as you look at it as just literature in the beginning, and then we got to add in all the other um, layers to it. But there's a sevenfold pattern to all six creation days, um, and it, it's kind of variations a little bit, but it's the same pattern. And before we look at that pattern, I just I just thought this was interesting because to me it, it's not just something to wow you or something that you need to jot down. But but as I was just reading through this and seeing this pop up all over the place. The, the, to me, it was just like, yeah, okay, it shows me something about God. So you have this sevenfold pattern, right? And then this number seven is all through the first chapter of Genesis, right? And we know that seven is the number of completeness or perfection in the Bible. So the late Hebrew uh, university professor, um, Umberto Casuto, I guess that's how you would say his last name, makes this observation, the words God, heavens, and earth, which are the three nouns of the opening verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, are repeated in this creation account in multiples of seven. God occurs 35 times, heavens 21 times, and earth 21 times. In addition to this, in the Hebrew original, the first verse has seven words, and the second, 14 words. The seventh paragraph, on which is the seventh day, has three sentences, each of which has seven words, and contains in the middle the phrase the seventh day. Huh. So what? It's interesting. But so what? I, I just again this shows us God's perfection and flawless orderliness. He is a very ordered God, right? He's, it shows his perfection. It's he's maybe maybe he's trying to, to tell us something, and maybe he's not. I don't know. But Moses wrote it down this way and and it's 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 clear there that this pattern is there but what it brought me to what I was thinking of, is I'm thinking about God's perfection and God's orderliness what it brought me to is this brother and sister everything that is broken around you is not how God created it it is broken because of sin it is broken because of sin your relationships that are broken is because of sin. The creation around us is broken because of sin. Even creation groans to be renewed, right? It is all broken as a result of sin. The God we worship is perfect and reveals himself as a God of order in the first chapter of his word to us. He's a God of order. So now back to this sevenfold pattern Gordon Wenham, in his commentary labels the sevenfold pattern that we see in this chapter like this. And maybe as you go down, you can look in in the first verses there on day one and you can underline them. And then maybe you can go back and and do it on your own and underline where you see this pattern all the way through the chapter. Number one, you have an announcement. God said. So God said. Then the second thing you see is a command. Let there be. God said, let there be. The third thing you see is fulfillment. It was so. Now, what is that saying about God? That's what I mean. All the way through this, this is the, the, the lens that I've, I've just tried to put on to look through all of this. It's like, okay, I see this. This is neat. We, we can chalk it up as pretty cool literature and, and everything like that. But what is it saying about God? Well, it sounds like to me if if seven times, and, and we know throughout the, the rest of the Bible, we're seeing it, this pattern of the God that we served, that He speaks... <laughs> He gives a command and it happens. It actually happens. So now stop and think whenever we, we get into the epistles and all the application of everything that Jesus gave us. Right, stop and think of all the things that it tells us to do. Do not be anxious if you go to me, right? Do not fear because perfect love casts out fear. All these commands and all these, these um these phrases and, and and all the things that he tells us to do and all the things he, he says that will happen from that, we could go right back to Genesis and say, okay, the, the same God is saying those things. We can trust it if we would just obey and do it. It's something that, that I, I don't know, it's just like, it's the simplest of things and, and it's just been wrecking me over the last several months as I've been studying this. It's like God said, let there be, it was so. Okay, so he says that if I'm anxious, go to him. If I've sinned, go to him and repent, because there's forgiveness to be had. There's grace to be had. There's freedom to be had. I don't have to be a slave to sin. I can, I can take the sin to him and, and re- require freedom. Why? Because he said it, it will be so. And we know that Christ has already purchased it. So you have, number one, that, that God said. Number two, let there be. Number three, it was so. And four, the execution of the command. Light, in this case. Let there be light, and there was light. Five, the approval of what was made. God saw that it was good, right? It was good. Number six, then, is there is an often a subsequent word, a further fashioning of creation, or often a naming of creation. And then finally... So in other words, that after he speaks and it happens, right? That it's it comes to be, it's executed. Then he'll he'll disclaim whether it's good. We know that we saw when he saw man and man was not man was alone. That that was not good, right? And then number six, there's some subsequent thing. And and the neat thing is, is is many times he'll name something, and that gives him dominion over that. If, if you're able to name something, whenever right uh, a husband and wife create a baby, they, they have the dominion to be able to name that baby. And then number seven, we have morning and evening, and the day is numbered. So that's just kind of the, the sevenfold pattern that you see throughout the first chapter of each of these creation days. We just need to understand that Genesis is not a science book. It is a very stylized piece of literature, as one commentator put it. The language, we can see, is not meant to be technical, detailed, but rather selective and observational. In other words, he's painting a picture. He's telling a story, right? He's just telling us a story. Genesis is a historical narrative. We are not in the realm of make-believe. This is what happened. Right? God told Moses to write it down. This is how it happened. We, are, we, we see no dragons, wizards, or, or potions. Nothing of gods or, or goddesses struggling and slaying one another and in, in ancient enemies as, as, as we would read in many other accounts of how all this came about. What we have here is a pattern piece of literature. Which is significant because the way it is written is to teach Israel about the God who created everything. And this God stands in contrast with all the gods of Egypt and the surrounding area. He's trying to just say, okay, the God that, that you serve is completely different than the rest of these gods. We have the external Eternal, powerful, wise God, speaking everything into existence. Creation comes by the voice of God. And God said, let there be light. Let there be light. If you are a Christian this morning, God has worked this miracle in your life, which is every bit as powerful as this miracle of creation. He has spoken into your dark heart and said, let there be light. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This has happened to you. God has spoke, and he has caused light to shine in your heart so that you may see Jesus for who he truly is. This this light symbolizes life and blessing of various sorts. You can read in, in Psalms 19 or Psalms 27 or 49 or 97 how the light is about life. But since the sun is later introduced as the immediate cause of light, what Moses is doing is emphasizing that God is the ultimate source of light. God is light. He's he's really, he's pushing back against the sun god, right? He's starting out by saying God is light. God gives light. God spoke it, and then there's light, right? Much like in the new heavens and the new earth, if we go to the end of the book, what is not present in the new heavens and the new earth? The sun. But there's still light. Why? Because God is the light, Right? He is the light. We'll talk more on that next week. See, this is a direct attack. He's he's directly attacking against the pagan religions, which worship the sun and the moon gods, right? He's saying, look, no, I am the light. Sounds like what Jesus said, right? If you're a Christian, that's what God did in your life. Maybe he did it when you were a little kid and, and had no clue what was happening. Or maybe he he did it when, when you were in youth. Or maybe you can tell. You know exactly where he did it, right? You know what sermon, what church you were in, or on the playground, or... In a friend's house or sitting at the coffee shop. Some of you know exactly when God shined his light in your heart. Right? You can pinpoint the exact sermon and moment. You can you can you know exactly who was speaking to you when it happened, who was sharing the good news of Jesus. But see, brother and sister, at some point, God spoke into your life. And when there was no faith, he gave you faith. When there was darkness, he gave you light. When, where there was death, he gave you life. He said into your heart, let there be light. And there was light. Then all of a sudden, this, this God that you, you, you consistently and always rebelled against, all of a sudden, you saw Him for who he is. We know that Jesus, and I know I, I go there much because I, I think that's the point. If you if you can't tell me what point in your life you were poor in spirit, then then I'm not sure if, if the light has been shown. Because if we don't get to the end of ourselves, which is the basic idea of being poor in spirit, then has the light truly shown in you? Don't hear me say that everybody's experience has to be the same because it doesn't. Don't hear me say that, please. But this light has shined in your heart, and now you love God, now that you want to obey Him, now that you want to serve Him. This light has shined, and it happens in our rebirth as His children So let me just apply this a little bit, thinking like, okay, so what? The the light has shined. God is the light. He's, He's shined his light in our hearts. So stop and think. The names in the fish tank, right? Your loved ones that do not know God. If God is the one that shines the light in their hearts, then what is the number one thing that we should be doing? The number one thing you should be doing is not figuring out the best way to present the gospel or or how to con- combat all of their, their scientific questions and all their apologetic questions. The number one thing that you should be doing for the people that you love that are not saved is what? Pleading with the God, the creator God, to shine light into their hearts. And that is done through prayer. It's through prayer. I know I'm going to be the pastor that says every sermon he talks about how important prayer is. Yep, I'll be that guy. It's through prayer. We have the God of the universe that created everything. That he begs us to come to him and pray to him and ask him of things. So the only way that those people in the the fish tank will ever be saved is if we start praying that God would shine the light into their souls. And then be praying that the workers, those that put, the, put those names in there, that they will continue to speak to them and give them the good news of the gospel. Because that's how he's going to speak to them. is through us. What a wonderful privilege we've been given to be agents of reconciliation. What a wonderful privilege. And anybody can do it anybody can do it. You don't have to have any kind of degrees. you can pray to God, please save them and you can you understand the gospel enough to share the gospel with them. God has shined the light. God created the light, saw the light and declared it to be good. Notice in verse four God separates the light from darkness. This is a key theme throughout the chapter. We have God separating day from night. Waters above from waters below. A a light for the day, a light for the night. Humans separated male and female. God orders the world with these divine pairs. He's separating. And when sin enters the world, it monkeys with the design. Right? Now, all the things that God separated, because when God separates them, he says, this is good. Right? Now sin comes into the world and what happens? Now we're separated from God. That's bad. Right? Man is at odds with other men. That's bad. That's the wrong separation because God did not ordain it. God did not make it so, but he does separate. And he calls it good. Adam and Eve were separated from the land. It's kind of like, Okay, they're separated from the land. And and one theme that you can trace through biblical theology all the way from Genesis to, at least from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation is how he's restoring us back to the land. He kicked us out of of Eden, but he's going to bring us back. He's working us back. Sin causes causes the separation that's not God-ordained, which is, is a key theme of what God is doing throughout the Bible, Right? He's restoring relationships. He's restoring all things back to the way He created them, the way He designed them. Genesis 1-5, as we continue on, God called the light day, and the darkness He called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now we ought to say something um, about the word day. Um, no small amount of controversy and no small amounts. of... Of ink that has been spilled over this Hebrew word yom. Y-O-M. What does day mean? Does it mean 24 hours a day? Does it mean a period of time? Well I I can say this. The word normally means a regular 24 hour day. I I think there is good reason. And this is where I'm going to put my stake in the ground. That it is good reason. To take yom here to mean a normal 24 hour day. Right. And let me give you three quick reasons. First. The mention of morning and evening. Certainly we are put into the realm of cycles and darkness and light. That's the idea. He's giving you a picture, right? There's evening. Now, we know that most of the time Israel, the Jewish people, their day begins in the evening, right? But evening, morning, evening, morning is still the idea of a day. This suggests very strongly we're talking about a normal day, a day that has darkened, darkness and a day that has light, morning and evening, right? Morning and evening. The second thing is, whenever you have numbered days in the Old Testament, they always refer to a regular day. First day, second day, and so on. So whenever you look at the word yom and how it's used within all these different contexts, um, whenever it's first day, second day, they're talking about a 24-hour day. Same is true about the words morning and evening. And here, um, it's almost like God's like, okay, just so you don't get it wrong, (laughs) um, I'm going to put... The day, the number day, one, and morning and evening all together here so that you know that maybe that day is a 24-hour day. And I know that so many people can argue uh, their way out of this and and think this is periods of time. But I just want to encourage you, um, please, um, don't be what John Piper calls a second-hander. Don't only know about the Word of God what other people say about the Word of God. Study it for yourself. Look at it for yourself. And, and if, if, if you go, and we have great tools online, and if, if you go online and, and you find a lexicon or a, a, a Bible dictionary or a concordance that's going to break this up, and they're going to look at Yom, and you can look at Yom in all of them, And all the ones that are, are just specifically telling you what the Hebrew word means, every single one of them are going to tell you that it's a 24-hour day. And what reference are they going to give you? Genesis 1-5. You can, you can look it up for yourself. Do it yourself. It, it just it's amazes me that, that 2,100 times that the word yom is used in the Old Testament, we know what it means except for Genesis 1-5. So again, I, I'm, I'll i put my stake in the ground there. Just I encourage you, don't be a second-hander. Look at it for yourself. And if, if you come up with a different thing, Okay. You know, because all of this amounts to um, just like we, whenever we get in these arguments about how the end times is going to happen, <laughs> right? Pre millennial, post millennial, all millennial. Okay, well, we could still be in fellowship if we disagree about that because we're still agreeing about Jesus and we really don't know what's going to happen there. But we can still fellowship over it. But I would just encourage you don't be a second hander. If you're going to sit down and talk to somebody about this, say, this is what the Hebrew says, not this is what this person says, this person says, or this person says. Right? And we have the tools. You have the tools available. Even sitting in the pews, available to you. If you want some of those tools, I will gladly email you some of those trusted sites that do the Bible study tools or the Blue Letter Bible and different places like that. The third thing is the seven days of the week are the pattern for our seven days of the week. We don't have seven ages, we have literal seven days of the week. Exodus 20:11 is a good example for this. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Sailhammer, which is one of the Hebrew scholars, says this. That first week was a real and literal week, one like we ourselves experience every seven days. But that first week was not like any other week. God did an extraordinary work in that week, causing its events to transcend by far anything which has occurred since. So the day, I believe, is a normal day. Let's look at day two. Genesis 1, 6 to 8. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let's separate the waters from the, from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. The key word we need to see in these passages and and to understand is what is meant by expanse, right? What does it mean by expanse or heavens in some translations? I believe from what I studied, it means the immediate sky above our heads, not Outer space, right? That's, it seems like what I've come to. Calvin described it as the clouds suspended in the air, just to give you a another picture, because that's what Moses is doing. He's trying to give us pictures of what God created and what he did. It describes something in our world, not something in outer space, Calvin went on to say. We see that the expanse is, is to separate water from water. Water above the land and water below it. And we see in verse 8, this expanse, if given a name, sky. Check your footnotes in your ESV. The heaven will have a footnote and it will say sky. Right? It's the blue part that we see. Maybe not so much today, but we do see the clouds that he separated today. Right? The waters above the heavens is simply the clouds which provide rain for those dwelling in the land. Genesis 7, in the flood, um, we read this. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. And the rain fell from the clouds. That God separated on day one. That's why we have rain. Thankful for we have rain because the rest of the way he designed everything, we need that rain. Not only for us, but for what we eat and everything else. We get some more help from the, within this chapter, within the same chapter, chapter one, down in verse 20. And God said, let the waters uh, swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens, So this idea of, of what he's separating is is where the birds fly, right? <laughs> we know where the birds fly. Um, I don't think it's meant a glass dome or a ceiling. I believe it's simply what we would call the sky, right? That's, that's what he separated in day two. Now, God created it, right? We're seeing that pattern. Now he gets to name it, right? He has dominion over it, right? He's sovereign. So now he gets to name it. Um, He made it, he can name it, and we'll see next week that he gives some of that dominion over to Adam and and to us. Um, So God made it, he separated it, and then he named it. So now let's look at day three, starting in verse nine. And God said, let the waters under heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry Land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and waters that were gathered together, he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees, bearing fruit and which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening. And there was morning, the third day. So on the third day, God caused the, the dry land to appear and the earth to flourish with growth. Now, the, the one thing we don't see in day two is it calling it, it was good. It's almost like day two and day three was a continuation of, of each other. And, and then he, he, he called it good um, halfway through um, you know, day three as far as halfway through the verses, right? He, and, and he calls it good. Um, so the emptiness now begins... To shift from bringing order to bringing fullness, right? He's now going to put vegetation on the ground. And I I just, I think he's continually pushing against what Israel came out of, right? Pushing against it. There are no sea gods, right? Only God that controls the seas, right? There's no sea God and, and, you know, vegetation God and, and fertilization God and all these different gods that they believed in. He's just constantly bringing it back. No, there's one God and he made all this and he ordered all this and he put it all in, 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 in motion and he sustains it as, as we read in Colossians. That he sustains it all through Christ. Um, I just think he's pushing back against that heart. Jeremiah gives us a good picture of this. In Jeremiah 5.22, Jeremiah says this, Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? Listen to what he says about his creation. I place the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that is, cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. In other words, he set where the sea can come and go no more. God did that. God designed it. He made it that way. God separates the land and the sea, and then the land produces vegetation. And this vegetation produces itself. It reproduces itself. There's not a God that causes it to happen. God caused it to happen. Now it happens. That's probably very confusing right there. See, they believe that there was a specific God a fertilization God that would cause the plants to grow and keep growing and keep growing. And we're gonna we're gonna look at an example of that here directly. But God's trying to say, no, there's one God that created it all, he designed it all, he ordered it all, he sustains it all. There's not multiple gods, right? So let me give you an example of 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 one of the the, the accounts of how all this came about and, and how they were thinking. And maybe maybe if we see this, if we see how they might have been thinking as they heard Genesis 1, right, that, that maybe it'll help us to read it better. So Ross gives this in, in his commentary. It says this, and it'll be up on the screen, and I'll try to go at a pace that you can read along. In Canaan, for example, the religious myth claimed that Baal could produce fertility. At the end of the year, Baal died, an idea that ex- explained why the crops died and was said to be captured by God-death, and carried away to the abyss, the domain of Prince C. But in the spring, the goddess Anat, or Anat, um, Baal's consort, rescued him in a bloody battle, defeating Prince C in the process. The reappearance of Baal thus um, ensures that the crops would grow in the new year and accounted for the change of seasons in the spring. Most of the ancient religious religions had such rituals designed to induce the gods to produce crops and fruit and life as well. So in other words, that they would have all these ceremonies to pray to these different gods so they would do their thing so that they would have crops and everything else. In contrast to corrupt accounts of fertility, the text of Genesis simply but powerfully reports that God gathered the seas together and decreed that the fertile earth produced vegetation. Fertility is a self-perpetuating process decreed by God, a created capacity from the true Lord of life. Vegetation does not result from some pagan god's springtime ascendancy through depraved ritual. It results from the majestic word of the sovereign Lord of creation. Does that give you some kind of a contrast, I hope? To see where where there, he's he's contrasting all these different ideas of how all of this came about and how it all works with the one true God. The one who speaks and it comes to be. Right? Day one, let there be light. Day two, let there be an expanse. Day three, let there be vegetation on the land. You know what the Bible tells us? That all of this, all of this is done through Christ. It's all done through Christ. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That means that Christ is the light, as Daniel read this morning. Because the Bible begins and ends by describing an untainted world that is filled with light, but no sun. And shows God as the source of light. It was fitting that Jesus called himself the light, saying, I am the light of the world. And he could continue to say, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We need to remember where Jesus made this statement that I am the light. He made this statement at the temple. In in the temple, they were burning torches, these giant torches during a ceremony, right? The illumination of the temple, which celebrated the glory of God that led Israel for 40 years in the wilderness. So do you get this picture that's being painted Here they're they're celebrating with these giant torches, right? The the pillar that that led Israel through the wilderness. And Jesus comes along and says, I am that light. I am the light. I was the one that led you through all that. I am the light. That's the the context and what he's saying when he says, I am the light of the world. Jesus, the giver of light in Genesis 1. The giver of light that shined in your dark soul and the light that will illumine the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation twenty-one twenty-three says, and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the Lamb. Jesus, the Lamb of God. Christ is the light and Christ brings order. Christ, the creator who brings order out of the dark chaos of our lives, who brings from the chaos of our lives complete and total order. If your life today is dark and desolate, if your life is out of control, if there's no light in your life, but only darkness, and there seems to be no hope, there is. His name is Jesus He will bring light and order to your world today, just like he did at the very beginning for everything. Very same power that created every star you see at night and every living organism you see in the creation. And the one who knit your body together in the womb will act on your behalf if you come to him. He will turn your night into day with a word. He will reorder your broken life with a word. He will bring form out of chaos with a word. It is his specialty. He is not only the light, the creator, and the son of God. He is the savior of the world. This very one who created the stars we see at night, who knit us together, who sustains every atom, came and died on the cross for your sins, And my sins. This one will save you. He can bring a Genesis to your life. That is what he came to do. Do you know him today? Do you know him today? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that Jesus is the light. That he shines the light into our dark hearts. Father, I pray if there's anyone here or in the sound of my voice listening on video, Lord, I just pray that, for them that you would shine the light so that they may respond in faith, the faith that you give them. That they have heard the good news of what the creator of the world has done in through Jesus. That He died for our sins. And Lord, for those that have been walking with Him for, for so long. Or maybe it is the trust issue. Maybe it's something else. Maybe you're speaking to them, and I'm sure you are, if they are listening in so many different ways. What are they to see? You have shined the light in their hearts. What are they they to see today about the God who saved them? This creator God. Lord, I pray that, that they will believe what you are showing them. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.